Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch. Today, we are going to talk about all things to do with heart health. Now, I know a lot of us are preoccupied with the coronavirus at the moment because it seems like an immediate threat. But our topic today is related, and here's why. Uh, Bob Graham, the executive director of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute, recently said that, and I quote, people who are dying from coronavirus often are dying of heart problems rather than respiratory problems. So heart disease is not just something that kills us slowly over time. It actually makes us susceptible to dying of complications from short-term illnesses like viruses and uh, the flu. So in today's episode, we are going to get the absolute latest research from a specialist cardiologist. We will be focusing on prevention and the role of diet, exercise, sleep, stress, supplements. And of course, we're also going to talk about diagnostics. That's something that I'm particularly interested in the role of pharmaceuticals. We should never discount the role of pharmaceuticals and what the future looks like for minimally invasive heart surgery. And something I'm excited about is as we all get older, it's something that may become inevitable for all of us or for some of us rather. So my guest today is a specialist cardiologist who is a member of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians the Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand. And um, he studied medicine at University of New South Wales, graduated with honours in 1999, then completed his training at St. George, Prince of Wales and Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Now, over the last five years, he has lectured extensively throughout the world and is a visiting medical officer at the Macquarie University Teaching Hospitals and St. Vincent Private Clinic. Now, uh, before I introduce uh, you, now I just want to go on because these next um, bits of information I've found about you make you even very relevant to what I want to talk about. And that is prior to your training in cardiology, uh, you completed additional advanced training in medical oncology and pharmacology. And it's your training in these areas that really allow you to adopt a more holistic approach. Now, you completed additional training in cardiac imaging in Australia, and you spent time at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, USA, where you learned some imaging techniques that you brought back to Australia. But the main reason why I invited this gentleman to the program is because of his focus on prevention, nutritional, functional, and the role of the mind-body. And because you also have a strong interest in sports cardiology, which is an emerging subspecialty, providing cardiac care to Olympic athletes. You've worked with the New South Wales Institute of Sport and more recently, the National Rugby League. Dr. Jason Kaplan, welcome to the High Branch community. Thank you very much for having me on, Sam. Now, I should uh, disclose also that you're my cardiologist, and that's how I met you. And we, in fact, got introduced by uh, Anthea Kalouris, who's a famous uh, naturopath here in Sydney, who is also uh, one of the keynote speakers at our 2019 Upgrade Your Life event. So I got to know um, uh, Dr. Kaplan's work really well. And because I'm so focused on prevention, I love meeting someone who is a hardcore specialist in this area, but takes prevention uh, seriously. So today, uh, Dr. Kaplan, I want to start by talking about really the role of diet 
because most doctors actually dismiss the role of diet up until recently anyway and uh, the role that diet plays on inflammation i want to talk about things like you know which diet is best is it keto is it paleo is it mediterranean and all all those things so can you tell us does diet have a role to play with our heart health look sam that is a great question and i think you're right you're right in saying that a lot of people a lot of you know specialists and some of my colleagues you know forgo diet and don't talk to patients about it and the really interesting thing is that about 90% of american trained cardiologists have had no or minimal education about nutrition during their training and i remember in medical school we had a few lectures from from rosemary stanton who was you know very prominent diet been a very prominent dietitian in australia and i think i ended up skipping one or two of them because at that stage back when i was studying i didn't think the diet was so important we just wanted to learn how to treat disease with with medications and we wanted to learn about you know the pathology so i think it's really important to realize that a lot of doctors and medical doctors unless they have a strong interest have not had a solid grounding in in, in nutrition and you know i realized from very from in my cardiology training that you know medic that acute care cardiologists were used to fix up people's arteries with balloons and stents when they had heart attack we were getting to people much too late and i decided after you know some i saw a lot of young people come in with heart attacks you know during my training i said there's got to be a, a better way that we have to work out how can we prevent these people from from having heart attacks in in, in the first place and diet is something that is so important everyone everyone eats and there's so much information about diet out there at the moment on the, on the internet and i'm sure you know the people get very passionate about diet about the dietary approaches that they take whether you're in a plant based whether you're in ketogenic or low fat or mediterranean and i just think it's important to acknowledge that it's very difficult to get you know unbiased you know information um and we also got to realize that there's this field called nutritional epidemiology where there are studies done from studying from studying page groups of populations and then looking at how these people ate and then what what outcomes or what, what outcomes they had and nutritional epidemiology when you read like when you hear the study showed that people who ate this this diet had this sort of outcome it's a very challenging field because people don't live in a bubble and there's lots of other confounding factors and also you have to ask yourself how did you know how did they measure what they ate and how did they keep a diary of it or it's very it's a, it's an area that's very difficult to absolutely control and so my approach for it is to look at well let's look at let's look at some the, my first approach is let's look at some of the world's longest living people and there was this ama- there's this amazing study published in the Lancet in um 2017 and it looked at a group do you know where the world's longest living people are sam i mean uh would you have a well you know some of the world's longest living people are this group in the amazon called the chimani people and the chimani people are amazing they're a group of hunter gatherer peoples um hunter hunter gatherers who still go out still go out hunting have a very simple diet but their arterial health is amazon men in their 80s have the arteries of americans and westerners in, in their 50s 
So most of the the, the older the older people in, in this particular people have no evidence of coronary artery have no evidence of coronary artery disease, and they you know they live on a you know lean they live on sort of lean game lean lean meat and fish and very little processed foods, and their average cholesterol is actually the cholesterol we see on people in Western society who need strong doses of the world's best-selling drug statins to treat. So there's something that they are doing in their, in their lifestyle that is protecting them. I think it's also important to note that they are very active. They are moving. Like they're, you know, if they're hunting, they're moving around, you know, all day. And, and everyone is very, very active. They know, they're just not getting their 10,000 steps a day. They're getting 20,000, 30,000, sometimes, some, sometimes even more. Um, and so I like to say, well, how do some of the world's longest living, living people eat? And there's this other great book that I, I always advise patients to look at. Um, and it's called the, the Blue Zones. Um, and the Blue Zones has had a chance to look at where do, where do people in the world live the longest? And there are five, there are five areas that people live the longest. There's, um, Ikaria in Greece, Sardinia in, um, Italy, Okinawa in Japan. Loma Linda in California, and then Cost and then Costa Rica in South America. And this book by Dan Butner has had a chance to analyze some of the dietary, some of the dietary patterns and lifestyle patterns of of some of these people. And they've they've actually found some pretty amazing common threads. Um, some of the some so some of the dietary common threads that I think are important, and I, I laid these down as, as principles. Is that say for example in Italy, they have um, they eat a lot of beans and legumes. Um, it plays a major part of it plays a major part of their diet, and we know that beans and legumes are actually very favourable. They're they're high fibre, they they're, they're lower cholesterol. Um, interestingly, in Sardinia, they do have wine that is actually high in polyphenols and a compound called resveratrol, which is a fairly potent an- antioxidant. Um, most of these people have a plant-based diet. They do not eat a lot of a lot of meat. And a lot of these places, well, especially Loma Linda is a community of Seventh-day Adventists who are vegetarian, who, who are mostly veget- are vegetarian anyway. But in the other areas, they mostly have plant-based diet. You know, lots of meat is something for an occasional, for either a religious festival or or a special or a special occasion. So they tend not to have a lot of a lot of meat in their diet. Um, some of the other really important um, important characteristics are is they often eat with family. They're very socially socially engaged. They have plenty of sunshine. They they eat a lot of nuts. Um, and interestingly, in Japan, and maybe this is something we can touch on, you know, when we talk about you know inflammation, is they have a lot of turmeric in their diet. And turmeric is a very potent anti-inflammatory. And inflammation is you know is something that is emerging as a very important risk factor for both the for a myocardial event, which is for a heart attack. And interesting, that's what we're we're speaking now at the time of the you know the COVID nineteen pandemic. And you know it's actually that inflammation and this whole the virus causes the inflammation, this whole inflammatory cascade in our bodies that's responsible for a lot of. Um, a lot of the, the very bad effects we, we see people, but chronic low-grade inflammation in, in our bodies, and this is easily measured by a 
simple blood test called a high sensitivity CRP has been associated has been associated with with heart attacks and heart heart attacks and, and myocardial events. And we have shown there was a, we have shown that there is an amazing study was it is it that after someone has had their heart attack, if we if you treat them, try treat their inflammation, and they they did this trial where they gave a very expensive drug that costs around a hundred thousand dollars a year as an infusion to try and reduce inflammation. They showed that these people had a significant reduction in their risk of a subsequent heart attack. But you know what I'm going to what we'll speak about is that there's so many di- dietary patterns that is able to reduce the amount of inflammation in in our bodies. And there was a great study published in. A journal called Circulation, which is one of the, the major heart journals from the American Heart Association, they showed that even after an eight-week mostly vegan plant-based diet, most people choosing this diet were able to significantly reduce the amounts of inflammation in their bodies. So I tell my patients, there's no need to go on a lot of, you know, too expensive, expensive drugs to do this this is a you know the inflammation that we we see in people this is a a lifestyle based problem and needs a lifestyle based approach to it now the the uh the groups of people you mentioned uh quite i mean they come from all over the world you know the blue zones but they all have different uh the the tribe that you mentioned early on from the was it amazonian tribe yeah the shimani from the amazon yeah yeah shimani so now they also ate uh, meat. You were saying, though, they did. Yep. Um, so I don't want to say that all meat. Sorry, I was going to say because we're getting a lot of mixed messages. Like you have um, experts out there saying, you know, eat paleo um, and it'll reduce inflammation. They'll, they'll say stay away from you know things like corn and wheat. But uh, this the uh, Samanis they. Uh, they actually eat corn, don't they? They do, and and in Costa, and in Costa Rica as well. They're some their main staple. You know, one of the staples is corn as well. And in Okinawa, they eat rice and they eat a lot of rice. <laughs> and in uh, Italy, in Sardinia, they have a lot of pasta. <laughs> so so is so is it diet then? Is it is it is it maybe it's more to do with uh, a combination of other factors you mentioned in there: sunshine, socializing. You know, a lot of exercise throughout the day. The uh, Samanis, they, it's like they're exercising for six hours or they're active for six hours every day. It, look, there are a lot of lifestyle factors and to, to treat. And, you know, once again, when we talked earlier, you talked earlier about a holistic approach to treat, you know, diet as a cause for a lot of people's health problems in, in isolation as being, I think that's being, you know, too narrow. Um, because all these, some of these long living peoples, they, they're all, you know, they had multi-generational families as well. They had a, a constant, moderate amount of physical activity. That a lot of them were socially engaged. I mean, this is what we do so badly, I think, in, for many people in Australia. And, and sadly, this whole, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is causing more, you know, social isolation, isolation and reduction in, in social engagement. Um, but these people were were active. They, you know, they they were involved in community. They, they had a you know a sense of a sense of purpose. Older older people were involved in day to day lives of uh, of the community. That's I, I believe that's really important. I place a lot of emphasis on the emotional. Having spent you know thirty years researching the role of diet, you know, exercise, all the physical 
aspect, the more I gravitate towards the role that our mental and emotional well-being has on, on the inflammatory markers. So does social isolation. Uh, Dr. Guy Winch is on our faculty, uh, says that social isolation is worse for you than smoking and sitting. Look, I, I agree. The, you would have heard of the, the Martin Seligman, who is the father of positive psychology. I was very lucky to have had a chance to meet him a few years ago when he was giving a lecture tour in Sydney. And in his wonderful book called Flourish, published in 2011, he talks about a study where he looked at a group of patients in America who had acute heart attacks. And they asked them after the heart attack, did they feel optimistic about life? And he, they gave them a score for optimism. And at a five-year five follow-up, all the people that were optimistic, that had a sense of purpose, were still were still alive. And the people that were pessimistic, just about half of those patients were not still alive at five years after their after their first heart attack. And he put forward that that optimism, just like you talked about, you know, being socially engaged, he talked about optimism is one of the you know, as important a risk factor as smoking, as of not having a, not having a sedentary lifestyle. And when, when he, he calculated equates to having an equal weighting to all other traditional cardio, cardiovascular risk factors. Um, we also know that people who are depressed after a heart attack or after admission for heart failure tend to do very poorly. And we, you know, we constantly screen people for depression after they've, after they've had a heart attack. Or had open heart surgery, so I think you know mental state and being optimistic and having a sense of purpose is is so important. You're right. So when you say having a sense of purpose, um, which probably makes you optimistic as well, that's something that is difficult for someone who's in their late fifties, early sixties, perhaps retired or getting squeezed out of an organisation to make way for someone younger, faster, right, um, cheaper. How does someone like that have a sense of purpose, especially in times like this and where you can't get on a ship and have, you know, a cruise around the world, you can't travel? I often think about that word, having a sense of purpose, because most people just define their sense of purpose as their job, right? But uh, is that something you can comment on? I know you're more of a cardiovascular uh, cardiologist, but from Martin Seligman's work, have you uh, any insight to give on what, what it is to have purpose? Look, I think that you're right that there are people in their late 50s. And, you know, my, my insight comes from having looked after patients for, you know, being a doctor for almost for 20 years now and having looked after many groups of patients across multiple therapeutic areas. I mean, I, I sort of think that one of the great ways people can have a sense of purpose is through service, um, service to their local community, service to their church or religious organization, um, and often, you know, service to, uh, I guess for men, there's lots of, I know that a lot of my male patients who have recently retired are getting involved with programs such as men sheds or helping mentor younger, younger generations of men in, in, in their trade or in certain areas. But I think one way that people can feel, can feel like a, a sense of purpose is through, you know, is through service and, and the sharing and the sharing of wisdom. And, you know, I guess what I see in, in my, Patient and the patients that I look look after that work about Martin Seligman's work and what you mentioned the people that don't have a sense of purpose and don't get involved and stay engaged in community when 
their, their work either finishes or 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 they they're not working. They're the people that tend to do poorly. I I you know I have a practice in Sydney CBD, and I can't tell you about how many patients that I that see are either retire from their their capacity as a, as a professional person, such as in law or in, or in banking, um, and then you know all of a sudden they don't have anything anything to do. It's the people that that do well that that stay socially engaged, that find activities, that join sporting clubs, that take up a new sport. These are the people that tend to flourish in that time of their life. Yeah, that's some really good tips there. Thank you. Uh, just getting back to diet then, what what foods do uh, cause inflammation then? We gathered that it's not just about diet and there's different groups in the blue zones eating different things, but are there a universally group of foods that actually we should not be eating? And I don't mean just processed foods, but also, you know, whole foods. So, look, Firstly, I think we need to acknowledge that we are all individuals and we're all incredibly complex biological systems, you know, more than we can appreciate. So my, my general advice to people is, is one, di- one diet is, is a not one size fit, fit all. Too much of what I, I guess we see out there is that people said, you know, well, this diet is the best diet. You should, you should take it. And this is how, this is how, how you should do it. And some of us have our bodies respond slightly differently because we, you know, firstly, our gut microbiome, which is, I guess, a whole area, which is for this, for discussion, but our gut microbiome is, is very different. So how we digest certain foods is different. How we metabolize certain foods, certain foods are different. And that's done in our, in our liver. And so we're incredibly complex and some people may respond to certain types of, of diet. Now, I think that some of the worst foods we can have is, I guess, is white refined carbohydrates and sugar, um, foods that are very high in sodium and, and, and processed foods. These are, and the, the other thing is trans fats. So fats that are made, added to food to keep them in packaged food or to keep foods more stable or in, or in baked goods. These sort of foods, especially trans fats and highly refined carbohydrates, highly refined things like uh, fructose and, and sugar corn syrup, these things are directly inflammatory, inflammatory to our to our arteries and to our to our cardiovascular system. And you know what's really interesting is there was a study done by one of my um, one of my mentors in cardiology at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital where they looked at some of the direct toxic effects of food consumption on, on the artery wall. And they used a technique called flow-mediated dilatation. And they gave someone a, a sort of a meal of McDonald's. They gave someone, you know, a Big Mac, a Big Mac, large fries, and a, and, and a thick shake. And they then let someone ingest the food. And then they looked at how your arteries responded to that. They looked at how the arteries responded to that food. And they showed that having... You know, like a large Big Mac meal was as bad for the arteries as smoking around five cigarettes to the arteries. Um, and that, that sort of food had a very d- directly toxic effect to arterial function. And it was seen fairly soon after the ingestion of that food. And so you imagine someone having that sort of diet day in, day, day out, and then you take that for months and, and years, and then you see, and you, you see what effect this has on, on our arteries. And what we're learning sam is actually learning that you know atherosclerosis or disease in the arteries starts from very early on um 
you know, often in teenage years, we start to, we start to see effects in the arteries of people that, that, that have very poor diets. Um, and, you know, I've had a practice in Western Sydney for the last 10 years, and there's this concept called food deserts. And I, you know, I, I drive out, I drive out to Western Sydney and I might pass next to each other a McDonald's, a KFC, a Pizza Hut, and a Hungry Jack's. And that is the only available, readily available, you know, food out there for, for many kilometers. And, you know, this is like, this is, it's just so bad for the overall population, population health. So, I mean, I guess to answer your question, there are certain foods that are inflammatory. Some foods will be more inflammatory than, than others. But I think you have to, you know, there's lots of people saying that, you know, carbs are inflammatory or, you know, there's people who say, you know, legumes are inflammatory. For some people, maybe gluten is inflammatory and there are some people maybe gluten intolerance. There are certain medical diseases such as celiac disease where people do have problems with, with gluten, with gluten containing foods. But, you know, for the, for the most part, people are very, people are want to be worried about foods that may be inflammatory. If they stick to, I guess, mostly a whole food and, um, and a plant-based diet, they will use that as, as their basis. Now, I don't, we, we touched earlier about, you know, meat. And I don't necessarily think, you know, meat is, is bad. And for, for some people that it may be good, I guess, I think that people need to source their meat from, you know, the best is organic, you know, organic grass, um, organic grass fed meat rather than, than grain fed. And you have to think about well, what goes into feeding that, you know, the meat as well. Are they getting lots of, lots of hormones and, um, and where the, where the meat is, where the, the, the animals are, are raised. But for some people, having lots, meat contains a compound called choline. And for some people and other, other products that contain a compound such as choline or things like eggs, processed food like, like bacon, chicken, some other, you know, red meats. For some people, the ingestion of choline leads to an elevation of a gut enzyme called TMAO, trimethylamine oxidase. TMAO has been, research done by the Cleveland Clinic, has been shown to be directly associated with the development of coronary atherosclerosis. And atherosclerosis is the disease in, in our arteries. And the more TMAO your gut produces in response to choline, the higher your chance of a cardiovascular event. Now, we talked about very soon, we're going to be able to measure if we do have TMAO in our guts and the actual level. Um, and this is going to be a very useful, you know, diagnostic test. But so for some people, when they ingest a lot of, you know, meats and, and animal proteins and animal products, they produce more TMAO. And then that leads to a higher chance of having a cardiac event and also a higher chance of plaque buildup in their arteries. But the really fascinating thing is, is that if people move to a more plant-based diet, uh, and more, and much closer towards vegetarian or, or even vegan, they do not produce this particular gut, this enzyme in, in their gut, this bacteria. So even if you, they do not produce TMAO at all, even if you gave them a, gave them a piece of steak, they won't produce TMAO after three to four months on a plant-based diet. Wow. So really the, the safest, the safest diet is a plant-based diet. And then after that, it's, it's whatever is, um, you know, uh, consistent or compatible with your genetic heritage and your own body's mechanisms. Like you mentioned earlier, we're all different. 
Like I can, I can eat a piece of red meat and I'll digest it really quick and I'll feel great after it. My, my son, who if he eats red meat, it's like takes him hours and he's sluggish and he's so, I mean, I think being able to test for these things is the best diagnostic tool, but you can also look out for your own symptoms. Your body gives you messages, doesn't it? Whether you feel bloated or whether you feel, you know, stressed after it or, um, or your energy dips. So what are the things that we can look out for? Like we can't, I know that humanity is getting to a point where biometrics is going to be at an instant, right? You can t test everything and probably upload everything to you. You'll have nanobots that go into various parts of the body and send you data to your mobile phone, knowing exactly what's going on. There are testing kits now out there for the, the gut microbiome. There's, so there's lots of all these testing kits. But up until we get to that and they become accessible to the masses, what, how do we know whether you know, grains are not good for us? How do we know whether meat's not good for us? What are the signals? Um, look, I think you have to listen to your, I mean, people have to know their own their, their own bodies and also know where they may have, firstly, nutritional deficiency. For some people, a, a plant-based or a vegan diet may not be, you know, ideal, though I certainly think that for patients who have significant cardiovascular disease and that's coronary artery disease it has been the only diet to have shown to help reverse coronary disease and that was work done by dean ornish in the 1990s who's really been one of the fathers of preventative you know cardiology and the dietary in the dietary approach to this and also you know work it's been sort of work that that has been sort of replicated by caldwell esselton as well as up at the cleveland clinic we have to listen to our own, I guess, our own bodies. Like if you have a very meal that's very high in carbohydrates and suddenly you feel very, very bloated or maybe your digestion afterwards is very bad, well, that's your body trying to tell you something. Um, and I think we have to be able to listen to our own cues. I mean, I'm a, like you, Sam, I'm a big believer in, in testing. So if we're going to choose to adopt a certain dietary, a dietary approach, you know, to eating, we want to, a lot of my patients want to know, well, how is that diet working for me? Is that diet, and when I tell my patients who have bad heart disease, I say, well, you know, why don't we adopt a more plant-based diet and then we can start to see about whether it's going to have significant, significant clinical benefit for you. So I believe we have to test. We have to test important metrics that are associated with, with outcomes. And I we, we can, so what in my patients, we want to make sure that if, we, if they're adopting a certain dietary style, we want to make sure that their cholesterol parameters are moving in the right way. I want to make sure that their markers of inflammation are moving in the right way. I want to make sure that their blood pressure is, 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 coming, is coming down. I want to make sure that their weight is coming down. I want to make sure that they're free of significant you know, cardiovascular symptoms. So I do believe that if we're choosing to adopt a certain way of life, we, we have to these days where we, and it's going to get more and more, you know, sophisticated and you're right with nanobots and to be able to get, in fact, real-time readings about what's going on in our body. We have to be able to measure it and then at some point reevaluate how we're we doing on this. What modifications do I, what modifications do I, do I need to do? How can I refine this so it'll support my, I guess, support my body? Yeah, well said, well said. So there's multiple factors. So your approach is to attack it on all fronts. Uh, you know, you mentioned blood pressure there. 
Uh, you mentioned cholesterol, uh, obviously. That's why I like what you do because you take a holistic approach because someone could get their cholesterol level right down and still have a heart attack or still their heart disease progresses, you know, their arteries get more, more clogged up. That is an amazing, that's a great point, Sam, because we know when people come in with acute heart attacks that, interestingly, the majority of these people will have normal cholesterol levels. So we know it's not just about cholesterol. You know, when, when we look at some of these plaques that have been affected, that people have heart attacks, we know that inflammation plays and plays a major part as well. And that's why I, that's why I think looking at, looking at inflammation is, you know, is very, is very important. Um, you know, a plant-based diet improves multiple cardiovascular risk factors, and there have been large studies to show that it reduces inflammation, it reduces cholesterol, it reduces blood pressure. There's also a marker that I would strongly encourage people to ask their doctor for, and it's something called uh, a blood test called lipoprotein little a. Lipoprotein little a is part of our cholesterol profile, and it's a little protein uh, that attaches to cholesterol molecules that makes the cholesterol more likely to deposit in the walls of our arteries and as a way contributes to the development of plaque or atherosclerosis. And just last year, the European Society of Cardiology recommended that in terms of a preventative, if people are interested in looking, taking care of their heart health preventative from a preventative point of view, they should get a baseline blood test called lipoprotein little a. It's available from most pathology labs, and people can ask their, their general practitioner about it. And if elevated, it is highly significant because we do know that the people of elevated lipoprotein little a are at significant increased risk of, cardi of cardiovascular disease and having a, having a heart attack at some point in their life. And it's also really important to then start start addressing it. Now, at the moment, there are no specific drugs to address lipoprotein little a, and part of it may be genetically genetically determined, but we, we, we do know that a more plant-based diet and lifestyle factors are able to reduce lipoprotein little a, and for some people, it may well be appropriate that we consider, you know, considered, considered drugs. Um, one of my most favorite studies published in the, in the last few years was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And while we're talking about, you know, genetic factors, which play a major part in coronary artery disease, this study looked at, well, how did lifestyle impact your, your baseline genetic risk? And they showed that if you had a very bad family history, and the people out there whose parents have had heart attacks, you know, uncles, siblings. If you have a very bad family history of, of heart disease, of high blood pressure, of diabetes, if you are able to make significant improvements in five or six key lifestyle factors, so if you were able to have a healthy weight, have a normal blood pressure, have were not diabetic, were a non-smoker, had a mild, mild alcohol consumption, did a reasonable amount of exercise, or would have lipid levels in keeping with preventative guidelines, you were able to reduce your underlying genetic risk by over 50%. And this goes into the whole field of, of epigenetics and our ability to alter our genetic predisposition. I always tell my, my patients that in a, in a way, you know, the, uh, your genetics load the gun, but it's our lifestyle that, that pulls the trigger. So we can, we can certainly, you know, we, we are able to modify our underlying genetic predisposition with lifestyle-based factors. Very powerful. 
Yeah, because there's a symbiotic relationship between all of them. So before we move on from diet, what do you think of like oils, vegetable oils? Because you've got Dean Ornish who says fish oil is good, olive oil is good, but then Dr. Esselstein who says oils are bad. <laughs> Look, this is a very contentious, contentious area. And uh, I guess as a Disclosure, I have done some uh, consulting work for um, one of the, the large producers of olive oil, olive oil in, in Australia. And it's partly because I, I think that, I don't think that my personal feeling is that olive oil, that certain, you know, oils are not totally bad. Um, I think there's certain types of oil that, that may be, that, that may be harmful. But when we look at one of the largest studies, in preventative medicine that was that's been ever done in the last 10 years it's a study called the pretty med study that was published in 2013 in the new england journal of medicine and i one of the other things that i always tell people is where was the data where was the study or where was the data that you're getting your information from published the new england journal of medicine or large well-recognized medical journals they have a fairly rigorous uh, r- rigorous process to, to look at data and published studies and this was a study done in spain and around europe that gave people you know one liter of olive oil a week to have as part of their, their diet so it's a large amount um and they followed them for five years and the people that had a high amount of extra virgin olive oil had a significantly reduced cardiovascular event rate and interestingly had a reduction in the amount of plaque in their carotid arteries and the carotid is you know the main blood vessel that takes blood from your heart to your brain. It's the, the conduit blood vessel. So it did have, you know, did have significant, uh, significant, you know, improvements. I guess we have to think about, you know, how they use, how they use the olive oil as well. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, to use olive oil in day to day food is, is fine. I think people have to be careful about choosing, choosing certain types of oil if they're cooking at very high temperatures. But I don't think, you know, day to day use in, in moderate amounts is, is is harmful, and I that study that interestingly that study Sam was then reanalyzed five years later, and they got the, they, they got the same results. Fish oil is another fascinating area as well, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening may have heard very conflicting views about omega three omega three fish oils, and you know a couple of years ago there was a lot of recommendations that we start to routinely take it, and then. There was a, a, a few studies that showed it actually wasn't of any benefit. Now, just last year, there was a very large study published called the Reduce It study, uh, where they used high-dose EPA. So one of the fish oil contains two, um, two molecules, EPA and, and DHA. So they used high-dose EPA as part of the omega-3 fish oils, and they showed that people who are on high doses, this was around four grams a day, so for we don't have high dose EPA in Australia, but we've got high there's certain capsules that are high strength omega three and usually to get that amount of EPA you'd want to take at least probably four of these high strength capsules. They showed a sig- over twenty percent reduction in cardiovascular events. So people who were on who had elevated triglycerides while on high dose statin therapy were given EPA or extra omega-3 fish oils, they had an over 20% reduction in cardiovascular events. Now, I can tell you to show a 20% reduction in cardiovascular events in a cardiology trial is almost unheard of. We've rarely seen such a large treatment effect 
in major cardiovascular trials over the last five years. So when my patients say, do, do I think it's beneficial to take omega-3? I said, you know, if you do have underlying heart disease or you think you may be at risk, I think that supplements for omega-3 may be beneficial, especially if you have elevated triglycerides in your blood. And that is a, that is another marker in the, in the day-to-day, day-to-day cholesterol profile. So I do think that those of us who don't get a lot of omega-3 in our diets, and it's possible to get it from, you know, a fish is a major, is a major source, but there are other plant-based sources, plant-based sources as well. We should consider taking an omega-3 supplement. So high triglycerides, that's uh, more often than not, that's uh, induced by the wrong diet, isn't it? It is. It is. So triglycerides have a very strong correlation with excess carbohydrates. Um, often, you know, a diet that is high in high in trans fats, you often see elevated triglycerides in people who are diabetics or people who have very high content of, you know, have a lot of sugar in their diet, a lot of processed carbohydrates biscuits, pastries, cakes, pies, anything you buy from the, I guess, from the, from, from the bakery, any packaged biscuits, we often see high triglycerides. And also people who have a significant alcohol consumption can have elevated triglycerides as well. Do you think that sugar produced in that fashion in pastries, biscuits, cakes, and do you think that should be banned? <laughs> I know that sounds pretty uh, extreme, but is, is, it a, is it a lethal weapon? Well, look, I've got this great slide in my in a presentation that I give every year at a health retreat called Gwingana, which, and this this slide shows that it's a slide that says Coke kills, and you know the amount of can of a can of Coke contains about eight teaspoons full of sugar, and when you look at the direct correlation between sugar sugar consumption in foods like pastries and biscuits and soft and soft drinks and cardiovascular events, there is a very strong association with the more refined sugar we have, the greater the amount of, the, the greater mortality. And that's why we're seeing this mad rush by all these soft drink companies to come up with healthy alternatives. You'll see that you know, Coca-Cola is suddenly buying kombucha com- producing companies and, and various other, you know, to, to diversify because pretty, I think soon that there will be, you know, uh, maybe not laws, but there will be some some restrictions in the amount of sugar that they can place in foods because of the significant, you know, poor cardiovascular outcomes and the rate of obesity. That I mean, look, Australia is catching up with the United States in how fat we're, you know, how fat we're becoming, and you know, with the amount of you know fast food out fast food outlets we see and and processed foods and convenience foods. That you know, I, I so I agree with you. I think it should be, you know. Outlawed is difficult because people do have free will, but you know I think it should be minimised. <laughs> well, I mean, like with the tobacco, they taxed it so much that it made it, uh, you know, unaffordable. Yeah, um, I think there should be some sort of tax on something that that kills people <laughs> slowly, um, or bit slowly. <laughs> I mean, my, my other caveat, the other interesting thing when we talk about high sugar drinks. I mean, one of the worst things that I think people can have are these energy drinks that you see in, you know, in convenience stores where they not only have the same amount of sugar as a can of Coke, they, they also have a high amounts of caffeine in them. And we've actually seen in the, in the cardiovascular literature, due to the high amounts of caffeine and other compounds, people have had sudden cardiac arrhythmias from drinking some of these, these energy drinks. I think 
you want to kill yourself quickly, you have an, one of those energy drinks every day. Yeah, well, what, on that on that subject, what do you think of coffee and black tea and, and green tea? I think green tea is one of the best things that, that we can have. It contains antioxidants and and some polyphenols and some of the world's, like in Japan and Okinawa, where some of the world's longest living people, green tea is a staple of their, of their diet. You go to a Japanese restaurant, you'll see that green tea is served with, with every meal. Um, tea also may contain some helpful helpful compounds. Um, coffee is is interesting. When you look at epidemiology, people who drink coffee seem to actually live live longer. And a lot of the the world's longest living populations do drink some some coffee. And I know certainly my morning coffee brings me a lot of happiness and joy. One of the things I really <laughs> enjoy in the morning and um, I know people feel very passionate about the, about their coffee. I, I think in Australia, our problem comes from, and Western society comes from what we have with the coffee. I'll, you know, maybe I'll have that pastry that they're selling at the coffee shop as well, or maybe I'll add some sugar to it, or you know, maybe have lots of milk in, in my coffee. Um, I, uh, you know, I've recently moved to having oat milk in some of my coffee, and I think that's pretty good too. Um, so I, I think that but excess coffee can have other deleterious effects. Um, you know, it can act as a diuretic, it raises cortisol, um, raises heart rate. So I think we have to find the balance. But I don't think that coffee is bad in, you know, reasonable amounts. Right. Yeah. What, what about dairy? You mentioned you've converted to oat milk. And I only ever drink oat milk or uh, previously almond milk. I've been off dairy for many, many years. Yeah. Yes, me too. Uh, what, what do you think of uh, of dairy? We talked about red meat, and you said it really depends on the individual. Does, is dairy a complete no, or is that something based on individual uh, reactions as well? Uh, I think it's look. I think it's based on individual individual reactions, and for some people, some people may be able to tolerate dairy better than others, and may relate to a certain enzyme in our gut that we. Uh, that we can digest, you know, dairy with. Some forms of dairy do have a high amount of saturated fat. And in some people, saturated fat may be responsible for, for the acceleration of coronary artery disease and it may raise, it may raise you know, cholesterol, which in, in some people, is con- if they've got underlying heart disease, may, may be concerning. The Dean Ornish recommends to it's fine for people to have low-fat dairy. I personally, for patients that, you know, for, for people that are serious about, you know, re- reducing the global cardiovascular risk, my advice to people is, is to minimize it. If having a bit of milk in your coffee, in your morning coffee, is bring, I think that, that, that may be okay. But I, my overall advice to people is to minimize the amount of, you know, of dairy that you have. Yeah, especially like hard cheeses. They're very high in saturated fat. They are. Yeah. So, is there any cheese that's okay, or not really? Look, I'm I'm not certain about you know the exact amount of fats in certain cheeses. Uh, we've recently had been having this amazing you know vegan pizza that has vegan cheese, and it tastes exactly like the regular pizzas, and it's just as delicious. And feel it feels much in a way healthier having pizza that way. <laughs> yeah, my good friend, uh, Dr. Jen Mann, who's um, in home isolation in California at the moment, uh, she would be loving this because uh, 
she's been telling me about these amazing products that you can get that just taste exactly like cheese or she's a vegan and and she swears by a plant-based diet uh, so i'm really do you remember the brand name but I, look I'm, i don't i don't remember the brand name unfortunately but look there, there's some good one there's some good ones out there because we really don't eat things because of their labels we don't say i like I eat red meat because I like red meat. We don't say I eat dairy because I like dairy. What we're really saying is I like the taste of it. I like the flavor. So a lot of people, for example, will eat red meat because they just say, oh, I love the taste of red meat. And I'll say, well, have you ever actually had it without any seasons and spices and salt? Are you, a, are you actually just enjoying the salt and the flavor? And can you use those same herbs and spices and salt to flavor plant-based um, foods. And I think that would be an interesting experiment if somebody <laughs> took a study and asked people that question. It's not the actual food itself, it's the flavour that we're getting from it. I think it's flavour and and texture as well. And I mean, certainly there are other ways you can flavour plant-based foods in a, in, a, in a similar way. You know, I often get asked, Sam, by a lot of people, I said, listen, I want you to move to, for your overall cardiovascular health to help reverse heart disease, I want you to move to a more plant-based diet. And one of the questions I get asked is, what about protein? How am I meant to get you know, protein protein in my, in, in my diet? And I think there are a lot of great sources of plant-based protein. And some of the things that I encourage people to introduce into the diet is things like chickpeas and hummus and almonds and chia seeds and uh, you know, black-eyed peas and black beans and beans like edamame quinoa almond butter there are ways and there to get you know reasonable amounts of protein soy or tempeh we can get you can get very reasonable amounts of protein on a on a plant-based based diet i mean i know there's a lot there's, there's this huge industry of these you know these burgers plant-based burgers that are meant to look like meats and have the same texture as texture as meats i'm not sure if you've ever had any? I, I had any. I had one the other day, and it tasted exactly like meat. I mean, I think that that's fine if people want to try and replicate that that same texture. But there are plenty of other sources of plant-based protein that we can that we can have. And there was one of my favorite studies that have come out in the last few years was a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. They just showed by a simple fact by replacing three percent of energy from animal protein to plant protein, you had a significant reduction in cardiovascular events. And that's especially true from people that have a lot of their, their animal protein from processed meats, from things like bacon, salamis, sausages. In fact, these are some of the worst things that we can put in, in, in our bodies. And you know, bacon is not a health food. It is not good. It is not, not good for us. So the simple thing by even a small amount of, of, of getting our protein from red meat to plant-based protein has a significant difference in terms of a reduction in cardiovascular events. Yeah, there was a book recently I read called Proteinaholic that Dr. Jen Mann uh, recommended for me. And the one thing that really stood out from that whole book is that we have been sold this con that we need to get a lot of protein and just our, our bodies just doesn't need that much protein is what we're told and and the other thing is that like you said there's a, a lot of the plants like i did not know that broccoli has a lot of protein for example yeah, broccoli's got a good reasonable amount of protein yeah, yeah. 
and uh, nuts and the seeds you mentioned. I think that behind every message that this is good for you is someone making a lot of money out of it. There are a lot of agendas that are being, I mean, I guess in, in the dietary, I guess when you look on social media and I guess I'm going to say the wars, but the dietary debates, the people that are pushing, you know, various agendas and viewpoints. But my interest is that, you know, people choose a dietary and lifestyle pattern that supports their their heart and, and longevity. And, you know, we need to follow where the current data and where the current data takes us. And in in my mind and you know, reading some of the, the, the literature, you know, a plant-based diet is probably one of the best ways we can support our support our, our heart health. I have patients that have got significant coronary artery disease that have not wanted stents or, or bypass surgery, but have chosen to treat their coronary artery disease with diet and lifestyle and are no medications who have moved to a plant-based diet that have been free of symptoms for many, many years now on a plant-based diet without without medication or, or intervention. Wow. I mean, you can't ignore that, can no. you? That's, that's that's an incredible result. And it, and you're seeing that firsthand from your I'm patients. I'm seeing that firsthand looking looking after people. But there was this, fanta- this very interesting study just published, and I think it's going to change how we practice cardiology. It was called the ischemia trial. And this trial looked at treating people with stable disease. This is not people who are having heart attacks and strokes. It's people that come in to their GP or, they, or to see someone like myself with chest pain, and they have, a, they have a narrowing. And we detect that on a stress test or with cardiac CT. They have a, they have a narrowing, and we either we, they randomize them to treat that with, with medications and lifestyle or putting a stent in a balloon or some people with bypass. And they then analyzed this at five years' time, in five years down the track, the outcomes were exactly the same. There was no benefit in stable disease by having a balloon or stent or bypass in the majority of these people. And so it just underscores the importance that, you know, if medications are indicated, you, you take them as recommended by your doctor. But how important lifestyle is at, at treating coronary artery disease and at preventing cardiovascular events. You do not, you know, so this is going to change how we look at, if everyone thinks that they've had a, gone to their cardiologist and, you know, had a, had a stent for a narrowing, that didn't necessarily save their life. The thing that makes real difference in outcomes is being on appropriate, you know, guideline-directed medical therapy. And if necessary, where I think patients are high enough risk, I do recommend statins and, you know, an aspirin. But to change their, their, their lifestyle and change how they, they move and, start doing more exercise, these are the things that are associated with significant benefits and outcomes. That's, uh, that's a really awesome approach. That's really cool. So you use uh, intervention as a you know, second or last resort. And if you're seeing those sort of results simply from lifestyle changes, uh, I think that gives a lot of people a lot of hope. I mean, before I met yourself, I, I was doing a lot of things to bring down my cholesterol. And I think by the time I got to see you, my doctor said to me, that's impossible. You must be taking a high dose of statins. And I said, no, I'm actually, I've been cutting the statin in half. And like I went, I was uh, on uh, five point, uh, my cholesterol uh, reached 5.8 on um, 20 milligrams of a statin. And I had reduced it to two and a half milligrams a day, but then combined with a lot of the uh, lifestyle changes that 
you introduced for me, I got my cholesterol even lower than 5.8. You know, it was was down in the high fours. So I've, I've experienced firsthand uh, how that works. Now, I'm not completely plant-based, but probably 80% of my diet is plant-based. And I do stay away from... So when I say plant-based, I don't mean bread either. I mean, grains are a, yeah, plant-based, obviously. They're, but I sort of put them in a different category. So I have minimal grains, lots of uh, vegetables, um, you know, minimal um, fruits, but and minimal uh, proteins. So uh, you know, we rarely have a slab, slab of steak. It's normally something that's infused in a, in a soup. In fact, my diet is the three S's. It's a smoothies, salads, and soups. Smoothies in the morning, <laughs> salads at day, and uh, and typically soups at night. Uh, but just staying on on diet a little bit, I want to talk about also you know, the importance of how much you eat and when to eat as well. Do they play just as significant role as what you eat? Look, Sam, I do I do think so. And there is a lot of emerging research now. And I'm far from an expert on, on this, this field because I'm just actually learning about it myself. But following on from some of the work on by Volta Lungo, who's over in California, who he's someone that has... Um, published on a diet called the fasting mimicking diet. So that's on calorie restriction and also about intermittent fasting. And I know a lot of people listening may be doing intermittent fasting or generally practice it on a, on a regular basis. There was a, there's also been a great review article published in once again, the New England Journal of Medicine that looks at the health benefits of intermittent fasting and the times that, that people eat. And there are a lot of people that do see a significant benefit in terms of losing weight and feelings of vitality by choosing by choosing to do intermittent fasting and eating at certain times or only eating with a certain eating within a certain time period um, I, it's a it's a very it's an exciting area and and you know perhaps it's a topic for another podcast <laughs> yeah yeah i i have heard of walter uh, uh Lungo. what about what about so he he uh, talks about the impact of um the circadian rhythm that's right on, yeah yeah that's right yeah he's i think he's been on dr ronda patrick's uh, uh show so we will save that for another time and uh, but before we we move on from this i just want to talk briefly on just uh so what are the best supplements to take and Actually, before that, how does someone know that they have heart disease? Are there some tests that people should get uh, at what age? And you mentioned the blood tests earlier. You mentioned uh, high-sensitive CRP. You also mentioned uh, apoprotein. Lipoprotein little a. Lipoprotein little a. I've also heard that homocysteine levels should be checked as well. Yep, homocysteine homocysteine is, is very helpful. And a basic cholesterol panel by that your general practitioner would would do is also a very powerful, a very powerful tool. Blood pre- blood pressure measurement for the majority of people, you don't have to get too fancy. There is a test that I do recommend for all men of the age of fifty if you don't have underlying heart disease, and that's a test called a coronary artery calcium score. That is a very simple test. In fact, people can self refer for that test. It's done in a large radiology practice. It's a low dose. CT scan, equivalent of about five chest x-rays, which is fairly small and talking about radiation dosages, and allows people to look for the presence of early atherosclerosis or plaque in the arteries. The more plaque that you have, the greater your risk of having 
a heart attack or stroke down, down the track. And then we can use the calcium score to integrate with other standard baseline risk factors. In my personal practice, I also test arterial stiffness using a device patented in Australia by the work of, from the work of Michael O'Rourke at, at St. Vincent's. The stiffer our arteries are, the more likely we are, we are to develop high blood pressure and a sobering fact is a quarter of all men over the age of 50 in Australia on antihypertensive medication. Can you believe that? A quarter of all men over the age of 50 in our society take medication for blood pressure. It's, it's, I think I find that sort of mind blowing when a lot of blood pressure can be treated with, you know, with, with lifestyle, with lifestyle, improving, improving our diet, improving exercise, deal, dealing with stress. So I think that these are some of the, the simple things that, that, that people can do. And then there are more advanced tests, uh, that can look at, you know, overall cardiovascular risk, but I encourage people to start off with the basics. I heard recently that there, um, it used to be that your, the normal blood pressure was 120 over 80. And if your blood pressure was, say, 140 over 90, they would put you on medication. But now they're recommending you go on medication if your, even if your blood pressure is, say, 130 over 80. Uh, are they just bringing the level down for health reasons or to get us on medication? <laughs> Look, my personal views is, and these guidelines are decided by expert consensus and very large roundtable international meetings of the major cardiac, of the major both cardiac and also like nephrology, the kidney disease societies. And a couple of years ago, you're right, they used one cutoff for 140 over 90, then they revised it. Now, my personal opinion in this is twofold. There was a very large trial called the SPRINT trial published, and this was a non-drug company funded trial published by the, the NIH in America. And they looked at cardiovascular outcomes that people had a lower blood pressure. So these were people who were treated to a target of 120 on 80 instead of treated you know, to a target between 130 and 140. And they had a significant reduction in cardiovascular events and in particular stroke. So I do recommend people do their best to run towards us under, under 130. But where I really think the benefit is, and this is something I've taken away from my great colleague and friend, Professor Raymond Schwartz, who's a neurologist in the southern part of Sydney, we did a PhD looking at the chronic brain effects of sustained high blood pressure. And I like to tell patients, if you've ever been sort of walking down and seeing the rocks on the coast, blood, high blood pressure, you have to think of your, the wall, the coastal walls is your brain. And the waves are like the waves of high blood pressure hitting your brain. You can imagine that, you know, that each wave probably doesn't do very, very much. But you have years of exposure to high blood pressure. You start to see erosion of, of the rocks. And in a way, that's what starts to happen to our brains. If you're exposed to high blood pressure for many years, you see these very tiny mini strokes that could, that could not be detected by, by regular, regular examinations. And that's what actually leads to early cognitive impairment and early signs of, of memory loss and vascular dementia. And so I firmly believe that having a lower blood pressure, especially in our midlife, is the key to protecting our, our brains and our hearts in it in from our sixth decade onwards. Wonderful. Good, really good advice there. And uh, hopefully in a future podcast, we could talk about the role of exercise, because I know that is a uh, core focus of yourself on heart health. Uh, but lastly, I, 
I also want to just finish by talking about keto diet because um, I know that's become very popular at the moment. And lastly, if you can give us what are the best supplements for heart health. But firstly, with keto, what, what do you know about keto? Is that so? I guess that some key facts, and I, I, you know, I think some of the work that the the ketogenic community have done. I really want to applaud some of the work that they have done, and and actually. What we have now is a lot of very smart people looking at cholesterol metabolism, asking the regular conventional medical community serious questions about some of the dietary recommendations that, that have been recommended for, for, for many years by some of the major dietary, dietary societies. And I've had a lot of patients that have a significant amount of weight loss using a, a ketogenic diet. In fact, I've had some that have cured type 2 diabetes that have lost 30 to 40 kilograms following following that sort of diet. As a as a cardiologist, I would say that if you have underlying heart disease, you need to tailor that that sort of that that dietary style, which often in some in some situations can be relatively high in saturated fats and higher in animal-based protein. You have to tailor it to what's going on for your particular cardi- particular cardiovascular risk. And I would hate for people to lose lose significant amounts of weight but end up causing more you know more deleterious effects to their arteries and heart health and there currently is a lot of trials going on um there's a company called verta health that has published some favorable um favorable metabolic data about the effects on keto diet at reducing inflammation elevating good cholesterol you know hdl as yet, we don't have any long-term outcome data on cardiovascular health. So I, I guess the jury's still out whether this is a good diet for, for long-term cardio, cardio, cardiovascular health. Certainly, it, it has proven very beneficial for, uh, for, losing, um, for, lo- for treating diabetes. But what I guess I, I would say is that, you know, not all carbs are there's – good, there's good carbs and there's, there's bad carbs, just like they're, you know, they're good fats and they're, they're bad fats. You know, people that, you know, I could say that I'm vegan and eat chips and chocolate, and those are pretty bad carbs and be inflammatory from inflammatory from, from, from my arteries. But I do think when you look at some of the world's longest living people, just we talked about in the blue zones, none of them live in ketosis. And most of those groups of people have a reasonable amount of, of carbohydrates in the form of sort of healthier carbohydrate choices, such as whole, whole wheats and legumes and vegetables and, and fruits. So it's, it's not just about carbohydrates. It's, it's often the sources from where we're getting our, where we're getting our, our foods on. And a lot of people may say, well, you're plant-based. You're not, you know, you're not for the keto diet. We're all after, we're all actually interested in, in the same thing. We're interested in getting, having better health outcomes for, for our patients. And I'm, you know, I, I collaborate with quite a few doctors that are proponents of the ketogenic diet. And I, you know, I ask, for their help in terms of helping patients lose, lose weight because, you know, obesity is another risk factor for development of heart disease. Diabetes is one of the strongest, poorly controlled diabetes is one of the strongest risk factors for development of coronary artery disease over the age of 50. So I guess that long-term studies, we, we don't have them yet, Sam, but perhaps in time we will. And I would encourage people to, you know, if you are following that sort of diet, just make sure that if you're doing it long term, get your get your heart checked out. That's uh, really good advice. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan. So, just some of the common threads of people in the blue zones. You mentioned a few of them sporadically, but 
maybe it'd be good just to uh, finish on that note. So you mentioned Okinawa and Japan, Sardinia and Italy, Loma. Loma Linda, is it, in California? Loma, Loma Linda in California. Yeah, so they all have quite a few things in common. There's a beautiful chart on your um, slide deck there for when you give keynote speeches. It's, um, and it shows that the things that they all have in common is there's no smoking. They have a plant-based diet, constant moderate physical activity, social engagement, they eat a lot of legumes and uh, a strong family unit. And uh, from there, people in Japan, they have high soy consumption, no alcohol. Uh, you mentioned faith as well. And I'd love to talk about these things in a, a future episode with you. There's no time urgency. Uh, <laughs> That's true. They, they, they don't, they're not rushed. You go to like Sardinia or Ikaria, people are not rushing around like crazy like we are in the, you know, we are in the city. They're don't have to deal with traffic. They're, they have lower stress levels. And you mentioned also that uh, women are empowered. They get a lot of sunshine, gardening. They eat whole grains. They're, uh, you also mentioned they're culturally isolated. But just on that factor of empowered women, what role does that play on um, in the Blue Zones? Look, I think that women have a very important place in the, in, the, in the household. I think they are revered for the work that they do in, you know, providing a lot of, providing the home, bringing, bringing up the children. I know my, my wife, who is a, now a stay-at-home mom after being in a very, sort of being a lawyer in a very large corporation, she said this is the hardest thing that she's, she's ever done. And I'm just, so when I, did, when I have to spend a day at, at home looking after three young, helping looking after three young children, I realize what a, challenging job it is and to all those it's a hard job and i think but enjoyable and, and rewarding and i i think that people should you know the, the moms that do that should be applauded and we need to our society needs to recognize that recognize the the very important role that that plays more and you know um it's a, it's a challenging job doing all of that yeah I, I i love that you've mentioned that and that you've picked it up in that research and you also mentioned culturally isolated that's uh, what do you mean by that look what some of these these common threads in these societies are is that some of them don't tend to have a lot of influence from, I guess, Western society. So you go to some of these, and that's not, not totally true, but you go to, if we went to some of these places, you would see that perhaps in Okinawa that there's not a lot of technology, despite Japan being very, you know, technologically savvy or in these rural areas in, in Italy, that they're still doing things like they did maybe 50 to uh, to 100 years ago in terms of food food preparation and, and, and lifestyle. So while our modern world has certainly produced a lot of amazing things and technology and medical breakthroughs, certain aspects that that lifestyle brings has not always been beneficial in terms of longevity. Yeah. So there is, I think, then... A case for anti-globalization, I guess. <laughs> uh, and it's it's interesting how this latest pandemic is is you know shutting the borders of a lot of countries, and uh, some see it as a good thing. Uh, some see it, you know. I remember like twenty years ago when I went to France, it looked different. The last time I went was only a few years ago. It felt like I could have been on any road in Australia. You know, we're standardising a lot of things where everything's becoming universal, which is good in some ways, but bad in others. And I guess the point 
that the blue zones make is that uh, there is a benefit in being culturally isolated from uh, the speed of the world and from the consumerism, materialism and the overconsumption of things. And that's a whole, um, you know, discussion altogether. I, I think so, yeah. There's a, there's a great story in Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, Sam, um, that, that looks at um, a group of um, a group of people that transplanted a lots of people from a village in um, a village in Italy and transplanted to a town around 100, 100 kilometers outside of um, the main of um, the main city, Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, and they looked at their heart attack or the cardiovascular disease rate. And they brought a lot of these traditions into this town, into, into this town, and they how, how they lived, similar to some of the things that we talked about, the common threads from the blue zones. And this town was this like oasis where people had a significant, compared to the general American population, had a significant reduction in cardiovascular events. They transplanted that to a place in rural, in rural Pennsylvania, well, not so rural Pennsylvania. But what they found was when more of the people in the town started adopting more Western habits and starting to eat more foods that more foods like their their, their neighbors, their cardiovascular disease disease rate started to equate more to the people around them. So there's there's something to be said for choose some of those lifestyle characteristics in preventing heart disease. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I just want to finish with, um, actually, before we finish, uh, can you recommend some supplements for good heart health, if any? So supplements are a, they're a big, they're a big, a big topic. And we, I touched earlier on omega-3 fish oils. I, and, I, and perhaps this is something that, you know, it'd be great to be able to come back to as well, because I, I do think it's an important topic. But what I want to leave you with is this. There was a very large meta-analysis, which is a meta-analysis is the summation of, of multiple large large studies published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology in 2018. And for the most part, it found that most cardiovascular supplements do not do not really change outcomes. And this looked at things like high-dose vitamin C, multivitamins, antioxidants. In fact, antioxidants, people took high-dose antioxidants actually did, did worse. Um, they found very little benefit for any supplement that improved cardiovascular outcomes. Perhaps there was a slight trend towards people who had folic acid and a B, and a B complex vitamin, and that, that showed a significant reduction in in stroke. My personal feeling is if you're getting plenty of green vegetables, you're getting enough folic acid, which is found in green vegetables. And interestingly, Sam, folic acid reduces homocysteine, which we talked about earlier was a, a, cardi a sort of a good cardiovascular risk marker to, to look at. Um, all other all other supplements, antioxidants, vitamin D, calcium, vitamin C, all do not have any benefit in cardiovascular in cardiovascular outcomes. Now, that's why I always tell my you know, patients, it's much better from the plate than the bottle. Um, you, you should get your food and your vitamins and nutrients you know, from, from the plate. There's certain areas in cardiology where I might recommend a certain supplement to achieve a certain biological outcome, such as you know, lowering cholesterol or managing blood pressure or dealing with, the, with inflammation. But on a whole, you know, supplements are supplements for a reason. They, they do not replace the core lifestyle the lifestyle changes 
and dietary changes that 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 should be made. Yeah, look, I'm I'm glad you you called that out because a lot of people are wasting a lot of money on supplements, and if they spent the same amount of money on great quality organic whole foods, they would be absorbing a, a lot more of those um, nutrients that the, the body desperately needs. I agree, and you. So, Sam, we you spoke earlier that we got introduced by Anthea Kaluros, and that what I love about Anthea's work is that that's the approach that Anthea recommends when she talks to people about you know choosing a dietary pattern that's in, in some nutrient dense foods and to get it from our to get the nutrition from from our foods, and that's why I so love her approach and her cookbook and how and the recommendation that she makes to people you know get it from the food you know not you know I see a lot of people that they're recommended on the naturopath from other people, all these supplements, they come in with a big box of supplements, but in actual fact, their food quality and the, the foods that they're eating are, are, are bad. So uh, I think that approach is fantastic. Yeah, I love her book. Uh, from memory, it's called I Am Food. I Am Food, yes. Yeah, Food as Medicine, highly recommend that. And it's got a lot of really good recipes, so it's very practical. So um, Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for um, coming on to a higher brand show. And will you come back and join us in the future? We'd love to download more information. I would love to. It's been it's been a pleasure. It's been I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Sam. Thank you. No, it's the pleasure's uh, ours, and hopefully, also we're talking at the moment. You might feature it, uh, upgrade your life twenty twenty one, which is something that will um, probably go ahead because hopefully this virus will be over by then. And uh, next, yeah, next year's event is called Forever Young, and I think the heart. And looking after our heart is an important part of staying forever uh, young. So it's not just about long life, it's about the quality of that long life. So thank you again, Dr. Jason Kaplan. Uh, Australia is very lucky to have someone of your calibre in this country who talks about preventative medicine when it comes to heart health. So thank you again. Thank you, Sam.